0: It's Thursday, April 30th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. A government-run study of Gilead Science's antiviral drug remdesivir has shown that the medicine is an effective treatment for COVID-19. The study achieved its primary goal, which was to improve time to recovery, which was reduced by four days for those on the drug. Adam Feuerstein, reporter at Stat News, joins us for more on Remdesivir, which is expected to get emergency approval by the FDA. Next, restaurants in Georgia, Tennessee, and Anchorage, Alaska have begun to reopen and all eyes will be on them to see how the rollout goes. In Georgia, the state government has issued 39 guidelines that restaurants must follow, including wearing face masks, screening employees and patrons for signs of illness, and even sign-in sheets if the info is needed later for contact tracing. Chloe Servino, writer at Forbes, joins us for how some restaurants are beginning to open their doors. Finally, the U.S. Department of Defense has officially released three videos depicting encounters that Navy pilots had with UFOs. These videos had already previously been released by the New York Times, but now the Pentagon is officially recognizing that the unclassified videos are real, though they do not come in what is seen. Daniel Oberhaus, writer at Wired, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: Data shows that remdesivir has a clear cut, significant positive effect in
2: diminishing the time to recovery.
0: Joining us now is Adam Feuerstein, reporter at Stat News. Thanks for joining us, Adam.
1: Hey, it's good to be here. Thank you.
0: I wanted to talk about some updates with regards to treating COVID 19, the coronavirus. There was a government run study of Gilead Sciences remdesivir, which has shown some promising things with regards to treatment of COVID-19. It shows that the medicine is effective and it really helps people get out of the hospital quicker when being treated with this. Adam, tell us a little bit about what we know from this study.
1: It was a pretty monumental day for COVID-19 and for this drug remdesivir today. Like you said, this is a government-run study. The study was actually run by the agency that is overseen by Tony Fauci. So his agency ran this very large clinical trial. There was a placebo control, which basically was looking at using remdesivir to treat COVID-19 patients who were in the hospital. And as you said, the study was positive and it found essentially that patients who took remdesivir recovered faster than similar patients who were treated with a placebo. On average, like basically four days faster, they recovered. So that's really a very significant, meaningful benefit. As you can imagine, if you can get treated with a drug, get out of the hospital faster, maybe you avoid going into the ICU and all of the sort of complications that go around with that. That's a meaningful benefit for people who are suffering from this terrible disease.
0: And Dr. Fauci's already said there's clear-cut evidence that this works. The FDA might approve emergency use of this. I mean, they did that with hydroxychloroquine before any real studies had been completed on that. So everybody thinks that this is going to get fast-tracked right away. Tell us a little bit about how the study was done
1: this is a drug that is going to help people who are in the hospital. It's not going to cure all the patients. It's not a cure for COVID-19. What we've desperately needed are effective drugs that can help treat the disease. And so this drug is kind of a first step in that process. And the reason that people are feeling really good today is because this study that was done by the government was a very large study It had over a 1,000 patients in it. It was a placebo-controlled study. So some of the patients were given remdesivir. Some of the patients were given placebo. That is sort of the gold standard, the most rigorously designed clinical trial. So when we see all the full results, and we've kind of gotten a snapshot of the results today, but I think this will lend confidence to the fact that this drug is effective.
0: And the improvement that they said, because that's what they said, that it achieved its goal of helping to improve the time of recovery. How did they measure the improvement since everybody's symptoms and the way they experience COVID-19 is a little bit different?
1: The end point or the main goal of the study was time to clinical improvement, and that they used basically a scale. Basically, every day they assessed patients to see their condition, and there were various different things that they looked at. Hospital discharge, they looked at the use of oxygen. There are various different measures that they used in the study to assess or to sort of grade clinical improvement for randesivir versus the placebo.
0: And randesivir, a little bit more about that, it's an antiviral medication that they tried to use it to treat Ebola. The other drug everybody had heard a lot of was hydroxychloroquine, and that had some side effects that would hit people's hearts. Did remdesivir have any side effects that patients were experiencing?
1: We haven't seen all the details yet, but generally from what's been released so far today, the side effect profile of remdesivir looks actually pretty clear. There haven't been any significant side effects or toxicities associated with the drug. And like you said, the drug has been around for a while. One of the reasons why... Gilead, the maker of the drug, was able to move so quickly into these large clinical trials is because the drug has been around for years. It has been studied in other viral outbreaks. You mentioned Ebola, which is one of the diseases that it was tested at years ago. So the drug had been used in patients previously. So because of that, they were able to kind of move pretty quickly into these large clinical trials because they already had a pretty decent-sized safety database. So that they were confident that giving this drug to COVID-19 patients, it wasn't going to harm them.
0: And what does the treatment with remdesivir look like? I had seen some stuff about a five-day treatment or 10-day treatment. I think it might've been two different studies that were looking at this, but what do they think the treatment course is going to look like if somebody is being treated with remdesivir?
1: That's a good point. And I think it's important because when we think medicines, people oftentimes think of, you can take a pill and you'll feel better. This is a drug that's given intravenously, so it's going to be given in the hospital. This is not going to be used for like every patient who has maybe even just mild COVID-19. This is a drug that will probably be used for patients who have more moderate to severe disease who are in the hospital because it has to be given over a course of many days by intravenous infusion. Whether it's given for five days or 10 days, that has been looked at both. There was another study that came out today that basically showed that whether you give it for five days or 10 days, the outcome is basically the same. But still, it has to be given over multiple days, and it will be given in the hospital.
0: So this is the first thing that people are really excited about. I know people got really excited about hydroxychloroquine, but the studies just weren't done yet. We didn't have all the information. That's why everybody was urging caution, guys like Dr. Fauci. But this is the first thing that people are really excited about.
1: I think the distinction between something like hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir is that there was sort of this rush to use hydroxychloroquine based on anecdotal evidence. The studies really hadn't been done yet. There were some reports of maybe patients benefiting. And so the drug was kind of thrown out there and people were using it. This is a little bit different in that there have been these clinical trials that have done. So the recommendation to use this drug, if it is done, would be based on the scientific data that comes out of these studies.
0: Adam Feuerstein, reporter at Stat News. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: It was a pleasure being on. Thank you.
2: After he made that announcement, um, I got with my team. My team has been suffering. Um, They've been out of work. They're not getting any assistance, Um, no no unemployment, no stimulus money for, for the business. And um, these are
0: real people with real problems, and they have to put food in their table. Joining us now is Chloe Sorvino, writer at Forbes. Thanks for joining us, Chloe. Thank you so much for having me. All eyes right now are on Georgia, Tennessee, and Alaska even, as they're starting to reopen restaurants. It hasn't gone so smoothly just yet. A lot of people really aren't turning out just yet, and a lot of restaurants even aren't opening. But there are a few that are out there that are starting to get the ball rolling. But I think you noted in your article, someone said this is kind of a dress rehearsal for the rest of the nation. Everybody's looking to see how they're doing it to see if it's the right way or if they can improve on it. Or, God forbid, if some more outbreaks occur, then they might have to start shutting things down. So, Chloe, tell us a little bit about how it went. Let's start off in Georgia, how it started going there.
3: I think some workers are scared still. I think some Georgians are coming out, though, to support their restaurants that have been opened. I've focused much of my reporting on what Waffle House has been doing because they play such an interesting role in Georgia and Georgia politics. It's this beloved cult-following diner chain, 24 hours. It has this rowdy at-night environment, but it also has this reputation of opening up really quickly after a crisis or after a disaster. And the chain's been headquartered there for 65 years. And the longtime kind of patriarch of the family that owns the chain, Joe Rogers Jr., was actually... One of the, from what I understand, the only restaurant representative on the 20-person committee that Governor Brian Kemp was using to create the guidelines to reopen. And in an extensive interview with me, Joe talked a lot about how it was so serious. He was pushing from this from March to reopen. And I think you're seeing that and what's been happening and how this this opening happened more quickly than some restaurant owners or maybe salon owners or other business owners in Georgia might have realized.
0: The governor, I guess, set out 39 guidelines that restaurants have to follow. I'm assuming, obviously, masks and gloves, things like that. So what are some of these guidelines, the way things are going to be changing for the restaurants?
3: Salad bars aren't going to really exist in a post-corona world. Neither will buffets. In Georgia, these guidelines are being decided state by state. So in Georgia, they're doing a per capita limit by per square foot. For each restaurant, so I believe only ten patrons per 500 square feet in the dining room. There's going to be no self-service anymore, so you can't pour your own drink, you can't put your ketchup on your hot dog anymore. They're going to be encouraging anything, even as small as having silverware rolled in a napkin beforehand, not pre-setting tables. These are going to be very, very specific things. But you know, I have to say, there are a fair amount of experts that say you know these guidelines don't go far enough and are questioning how safe this will continue to be in each situation.
0: You mentioned a little bit about the political part of this, and there was one of the restaurants there in Georgia, in an Atlanta-based restaurant called the Original Hot Dog Factory, who said you know, they were going to open up, they wanted to do some stuff early on right now, but they got so much blowback from the community. They were fielding calls from local officials who said, hey, you're moving a little too fast. So they actually didn't open up after all. And even early reports from what's been going on, there's been very, very limited patrons visiting some of these restaurants so far.
3: I've heard that there's a little bit of backlash if you are going out right now. I mean, it depends. Waffle House has told me that you know their customers are thrilled to be back and thrilled to be feeling that taste of home. I also know Waffle House obviously is really located on these key highways. And I'm sure there are a lot of truckers right now that are bringing food, transporting it across America and these supply chains who are happy to, when they get to Georgia, to go into some of these locations and have some rest. But I think there are a lot of communities that are still very concerned.
0: I don't know if this was in one of the Georgia guidelines, but I think it was in one of the Alaska guidelines, where they said that a restaurant's gonna have to have a log of every customer's first and last name and contact phone number. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, if they need any contact tracing or something that has to be done after, they have that information. The Washington Post, I guess, spoke to Hugh Atchison. You know, you've seen him on Top Chef, he's Mm -hmm. one of the big major stars. He has a bunch of restaurants there in Georgia. You know, he said, I can't have people I employ and work with be used as sacrificial lambs and all this, you know, what if somebody gets sick? So, I mean, that's just this other part. And, you know, as I said, hopefully nothing does happen, but, you know, do these restaurants have a liability in this? You know, could somebody sue them later on down the line if they contracted COVID-19 at their restaurant?
3: From what we've seen from what's been reopening around Hong Kong, for example, is exactly that. The restaurants that have apps will be, I think, making this transition a little bit easier moving forward because so much of this will want to be seamless. You are going to have to go into a restaurant when you take your name, sign a waiver and give information in case someone in that restaurant was later found out to be sick with this virus and you have to be contacted. These are really serious concerns. And I just want to highlight that, you know, for the workers, this is a really, really difficult decision to have to make my dealings with Waffle House, you know, they tell me that their workers are really struggling and they really want to be coming back to work. But at the same time, there are a lot of other folks out there and a lot of other people I'm I'm talking to who just aren't ready, who are concerned. I think you're seeing that across the food system and across, for that matter, that, you know, the front lines in terms of meat plant workers, other fast food restaurants, delivery services.
0: Chloe Servino, writer at Forbes. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much. There was three videos in total, one of the Nimitz encounter in 2004 and two others of a encounter in 2015. They gave the DOD official stamp of approval. They put them on their website. So basically, they authorized the release of these videos. Joining
0: us now is Daniel Oberhaus, writer at Wired. Thanks for joining us, Daniel. Thank you for having me. We've talked a lot on the podcast about the Nimitz UFO encounter and the video that has been released by it. I think the New York Times released this video back in 2017. We've talked about some of the witnesses and how they experienced this also. But there's just an update. There's always something going on specifically with this. And for those that don't remember, this is military footage that shows this kind of tic tac shaped UFO flying around in crazy patterns and whatnot. It's gotten a lot of traction over the years. But on Monday, the U.S. Department of Defense officially released three videos depicting these encounters between the Navy pilots and this unidentified aerial phenomenon, as they call it now. Daniel, tell us a little bit about it. And what does this all mean now?
2: Sure. There's been a lot of inaccurate information about what actually happened on Monday. So all that really happened was the Department of Defense took these videos that we've all seen. There was three videos in total, one of the Nimitz encounter in 2004, and two others of a encounter in 2015. They gave the DOD official stamp of approval. They put them on their website. So basically they authorized the release of these videos. What that means is it doesn't mean they were declassified. These videos were never under any sort of national security restrictions or anything like that. It's just the DOD formally releasing these videos that everyone has already seen. So it's not them saying aliens exist or anything like that. It's just kind of a formal process of releasing these videos into the public.
0: What the Department of Defense said also is that they were never really classified in a sense. They didn't have to be declassified. It was always kind of an unclassified setting. And I know there's a lot of nuance to the different wording and all, but basically they said that whatever was in these videos never was really something that had to be top secret, classified, something like that.
2: There's a bit of confusion about that because the To The Stars Academy, this company run by the Blink-182 singer Tom DeLong. They got the videos at the same time as the New York Times released the videos back in 2017, and they claimed to have all this paperwork showing chain of custody, that these videos had been approved for release within the DoD, that they had been declassified, which, as far as I can tell, isn't actually correct. They haven't shown me the paperwork. I got in contact with their government liaison yesterday, and they doubled down on what they were saying. But according to the DoD's release yesterday, these videos were unclassified and I followed up with a spokesperson there who confirmed that they had never been classified. And so this is really the first time they've been authorized for release. So whatever happened in 2017, the DOD considers an unauthorized leak of these videos. So it is a big deal in the sense that the DOD is finally saying, hey, you can have these videos now, even though we already did. What I did think was interesting though is that the DOD official who I spoke with said that these videos although they themselves are not classified, they were used in classified investigations.
0: I know that they put out a statement, but are they released without comment, so to speak, in the sense that they just don't, say what it is? Obviously, we've heard the descriptions of it, the tic-tac-shaped thing flying around doing these crazy maneuvers that nothing else can do. And I guess even there's some audio of the pilots or whoever's watching the video going, whoa, this is crazy, you know, with some expletives in there and all. But do they just basically just say, hey, we're giving you the video and we're really not saying much else?
2: The official line as of Monday is that this object is unidentified. They say they don't know what it is depending on your level of skepticism. Maybe you believe it, maybe you don't. But as of right now, no one actually knows what's in this video. It is still very much a mystery.
0: So just kind of bottom line, this whole thing for us, because this has been out there for a long time. And obviously, if you're a believer in aliens and UFOs, things like that, this is just more fuel for you. But where do we land on this? Because we've talked about this for so much now.
2: I think the bottom line is that this is still very much an open question as to what we're seeing. There's Obviously, a lot of speculation that this might be extraterrestrial craft, that it could be uh, advanced foreign aircraft, or it could just be something as mundane as a radar anomaly. So it's still up for debate. As of right now, there's really no new information. This release was kind of a government doing government stuff, giving its official approval. So hopefully, I think the bottom line is that this will hopefully inspire more people to take interest in this and maybe treat it a little bit more seriously. There's no longer a question of whether or not these videos are authentic. And hopefully it leads to more disclosure of unidentified aerial phenomena in the future.
0: The videos are short, but it is fun to hear the reactions from the Navy pilots, whoever's on that audio right there, kind of their surprise to what's going on. I mean, these are guys that I've gone through all the training. They're obviously at high levels if they're flying these planes and following these things. And even beyond that, the operators behind the scenes, even they're really shocked about what they're seeing. So, I mean, that's another kind of fun element to these videos.
2: I totally agree. And hearing them express such surprise at this, there was follow-ups by the New York Times. One of the pilots went on record saying that they saw one of these things with their own eyes. I, you know, I will add the caveat that I've had the opportunity to speak with flight surgeons who have spent a lot of time in military aircraft, these really high-performance jets, And based on my conversations with them, it's not that uncommon for pilots to have hallucinations, which is a little bit scary uh, in itself. But just because of, you know, you're going so fast, you don't have great peripheral vision, pilots see things that they can't explain all the time. If you're of the extraterrestrial exist mindset, you might say that they're just more likely to see them because they're up in the air. But there's a lot of other factors that come into play in terms of how pilots deal with strange things going on with their vision.
0: Daniel Oberhaus, writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Uh, thank you very much.
0: That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.